Chapter Five of When William Came by Saki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. When William Came by Saki. Chapter Five. L'Art d'être cousine. Joan Nardle had reached forty in the leisurely, untroubled fashion of a woman who intends to be comely and attractive at fifty. She cultivated a jovial, almost joyous manner, with a top dressing of hearty goodwill and good nature which disarmed strangers and recent acquaintances. On getting to know her better, they hastily rearmed themselves. Someone had once aptly described her as a hedgehog with the protective mimicry of a puffball. If there was an awkward remark to be made at an inconvenient moment before undesired listeners, Joan invariably made it, and when the occasion did not present itself, she was usually capable of creating it. She was not without a certain popularity, the sort of popularity that a dashing highwayman sometimes achieved, among those who were not in the habit of travelling on his particular highway. The great-aunt on her mother's side of the family had married so often that Joan imagined herself justified in claiming cousinship with a large circle of disconnected houses, and treating them all on a relationship footing, which theoretical kinship enabled her to extract luncheons and other accommodations under the plea of keeping the lamp of family life aglow. "'I felt I simply had to come to-day,' she chuckled at Yeovil. "'I was just dying to see the returned traveller. Of course I know perfectly well that neither of you want me, when you haven't seen each other for so long, and must have heaps and heaps to say to one another. But I thought I would risk the odium of being the third person on an occasion when two are company and three are a nuisance. Wasn't it brave of me?' She spoke in the full knowledge of the fact that the luncheon-party would not in any case have been restricted to Yeovil and his wife, having seen Ronnie arrive in the hall as she was being shown upstairs. "'Ronnie's store is coming, I believe,' said Cicely, "'so you're not breaking into a tete-a-tete.' "'Ronnie! Oh, I don't count him,' said Joan gaily. "'He's just a boy who looks nice and eats asparagus. I hear he's getting to play the piano really well. Such a pity! He will grow fat. Musicians always do, and it will ruin him. I speak feelingly because I'm gravitating towards plumpness myself. The divine architect turns us out fearfully and wonderfully built, and the result is charming to the eye.' and then he adds another chin and two or three extra inches round the waist and the effect is ruined fortunately you can always find another ronnie when this one grows fat and uninteresting the supply of boys who look nice and eat asparagus is unlimited hello mr store we were all talking about you nothing very damaging i hope said ronnie who had just entered the room "'No, we were merely deciding that whatever you may do with your life, your chin must remain single. When one's chin begins to lead a double life, one's own opportunities for depravity are insensibly narrowed. You needn't tell me that you haven't any hankerings after depravity. People with your coloured eyes and hair are always depraved.' "'Let me introduce you to my husband, Ronnie,' said Cicely, "'and then let's go and begin lunch.' "'You two must almost feel as if you were honeymooning again,' said Joan, as they sat down. "'You must have quite forgotten each other's tastes and peculiarities since you last met. 
Old Emily Fromling was talking about you yesterday when I mentioned that Murray was expected home. Curious sort of marriage tie, she said, in that stupid staring way of hers, when husband and wife spend most of their time in different continents. I don't call it marriage at all. Nonsense, I said. It's the best way of doing things. The Yeovils will be a united and devoted couple long after heaps of their married contemporaries have trundled through the divorce court. I forgot at the moment that her youngest girl had divorced her husband last year, and that her second girl is rumoured to be contemplating a similar step. One can't remember everything. Joan Mardle was remarkable for being able to remember the smallest details in the family lives of two or three hundred acquaintances. From personal matters, she went with a bound to the political small talk of the moment. "'The official declaration as to the House of Lords is out at last,' she said. "'I bought a paper just before coming here, but I left it in the tube. All existing titles are to lapse. If three successive holders, including the present ones, fail to take the oath of allegiance.' "'Have any taken it, up to the present?' asked Yeovil. "'Only about nineteen so far, and none of them representing very leading families. "'Of course, others will come in gradually, as the change of dynasty becomes more and more an accepted fact. "'And, of course, there will be lots of new creations to fill up the gaps. "'I hear for certain that Pitherby is to get a title of some sort in recognition of his literary labours. "'He has written a short history of the House of Hohenzollern, for use in schools, you know, "'and he is bringing out a popular life of Frederick the Great.' At least, he hopes it'll be popular. "'I didn't know that writing was much in his line,' said Yeovil, beyond the occasional editing of a company prospectus. "'I understand that his historical researches have given every satisfaction in exalted quarters,' said Joan. "'Something may be lacking in the style, perhaps, but the august approval can make good that defect with the style of Baron.' Pitherby has such a kind heart, and kind hearts are more than coronets, we all know, but the two go quite well together. And the dear man is not content with his services to literature. He's blossoming forth as a liberal patron of the arts. He's taken quite a lot of tickets for dear Gawler's debut, half the second row of the dress circle. "'Do you mean Gawler Musselford?' asked Yeovil, catching at the name. "'What on earth is she having a debut about?' "'What?' cried Joan, in loud-voiced amazement. "'Haven't you heard? Hasn't Cicely told you? How funny that you shouldn't have heard! Why, it's going to be one of the events of the season. Everybody's talking about it. She's going to do suggestion dancing at the Caravansary Theatre.' "'Good heavens! What is suggestion dancing?' asked Yeovil. "'Oh, something quite new,' explained Joan. "'At any rate, the name is quite new, and Gawler is new, as far as the public are concerned, and that's enough to establish the novelty of the thing. Amongst other things, she does a dance suggesting the life of a fern. I saw one of the rehearsals, and to me it would equally well have suggested the life of John Wesley. <laughs> However, that is probably the fault of my imagination. I've either got too much or too little.' "'Anyhow, it's an understood thing that she's to take London by storm.' "'When I last saw Gawler Musselford,' observed Yeovil, "'she was a rather serious flapper who thought the world was in urgent need of regeneration, "'and was not certain whether she would regenerate it or take up miniature painting. "'I forget which she attempted ultimately.' "'She's quite serious about her art,' 
put in Cicely. She's studied a good deal abroad and worked hard at mastering the technique of her profession. She's not a mere amateur with a hankering after the footlights. I fancy she will do well. But what do her people say about it? asked Yeovil. Oh, they're simply furious about it, answered Joan. The idea of a daughter of the House of Musselford prancing and twisting about the stage for Prussian officers and Hamburg Jews to gaze at is a dreadful cup of humiliation for them. It's unfortunate, of course, that they should feel so acutely about it, but still one can understand their point of view. I don't see what other point of view they could possibly take, said Yeovil sharply, if Goller thinks that the necessities of art— or her own inclinations demand that she should dance in public. Why can't she do it in Paris, or even Vienna? Anywhere would be better, one would think, than in London, under the present conditions. He had given Joan the indication that she was looking for as to his attitude towards the fait accompli. Without asking a question, she had discovered that husband and wife were divided on the fundamental issue that underlay all others at the present moment. Cicely was weaving social schemes for the future. Yeovil had come home in a frame of mind that threatened the destruction of those schemes, or at any rate a serious hindrance to their execution. The situation presented itself to Joan's mind with an alluring piquancy. "'You're giving a grand supper-party for Gawler on the night of her debut, aren't you?' she asked Cicely. "'Several people spoke to me about it, so I suppose it must be true.' Tony Luton and young Storr had taken care to spread the news of the projected supper function in order to ensure against a change of plans on Cicely's part. "'Gawler is a great friend of mine,' said Cicely, trying to talk as if the conversation had taken a perfectly indifferent turn. "'Also, I think she deserves a little encouragement after the hard work she's been through. I thought it would be doing her a kindness to arrange a supper-party for her on the first night.' There was a moment's silence. Yeovil said nothing, and Joan understood the value of being occasionally tongue-tied. "'The whole question is,' continued Cicely, as the silence became oppressive, "'whether one is to mope and hold aloof from the national life, or take our share in it. The life has got to go on, whether we participate in it or not. It seems to me to be more patriotic to come down into the dust of the market-place than to withdraw oneself beyond walls or beyond the seas.' "'Of course the industrial life of the country has to go on,' said Yeovil. "'No one could criticise Gawler if she interested herself in organising cottage industries, or anything of that sort, in which she would be helping her own people. That one could understand. But I don't think that a cosmopolitan concern like the music-hall business calls for personal sacrifices from young women of good family at a moment like the present.' It's just at a moment like the present that the people want something to interest them and take them out of themselves, said Cicely argumentatively. What has happened has happened, and we can't undo it or, or escape the consequences. What we can do, or attempt to do, is to make things less dreary and make people less unhappy. In a word, more contented, said Yeovil. If I were a German statesman, that is the end I would labour for, and encourage others to labour for to make the people forget that they were discontented. All this work of recalvinizing the social side of London life may be summed up in the phrase, Travailler pour le roi de Prusse. I don't think there's any use in discussing the matter further, said Cicely. I can see that grand supper party not coming off, 
said Joan provocatively. Ronnie looked anxiously at Cicely. "'You can see it coming on if you're gifted with the prophetic vision of a reliable kind,' said Cicely. "'Of course, as Murray doesn't take kindly to the idea of Gawler's enterprise, I won't have the party here. I'll give it at a restaurant, that's all. I can see Murray's point of view and sympathise with it. But I'm not going to throw Gawler over.' There was another pause of uncomfortably protracted duration. "'I say this is a top-hole omelette.' said Ronnie. It was his only contribution to the conversation, but it was a valuable one. End of chapter 5